If we're going to normalize conversations about the medical care we do or don't want as we approach the end of our lives and what matters most, a lot of us could probably use some help, help in the form of encouragement to talk about these issues with loved ones at an earlier stage of life when it seems like just about anything else would be a better subject. Some of you may be familiar with Roz Chath's memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? We could also probably use some help in the form of ideas and resources, and increasingly we can benefit from discussions from support of others who want to jumpstart end-of-life care discussions with their own family members and friends and are facing similar challenges. Imagine then living in a community where not only your health care providers and local hospital are becoming conversation ready, but your book club is and your synagogue is, and you've heard there are now discussions taking place at a nearby community center. Building a community infrastructure Structure to take the taboo out of critically important conversations. That's why we're here on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Health Care Improvement. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Happy New Year to you all. Numbers now can only tell part of the story, but since the conversation project was started in late 2011, there have been over 100 150,000 downloads of the Starter Kit, which you'll hear more about from the website. And the initiative is now actively engaged with some 150 and counting organizations around the country that are applying their own know-how to help people have frank conversations about end-of-life care issues. So we're going to zero in on three such efforts and the bigger context, thanks to the guests joining us on today's WHI. And I'm going to introduce everyone in just a moment, but first here's John Gott. Here with me in the studio with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today. John? All right. Thanks, everyone. I um, have just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Of course, on the right of your screen is the chat window. And if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that all your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listen to the program by streaming audio, Audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their number is up on the slide as we speak. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted to our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way today. Finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks. So, uh, John, thanks for unmuting our panelists so we can get to introductions. I also want to remind everyone 
everybody about uh, tweeting, if that's something that appeals to you. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweet so we can enlarge who's part of the conversation. Here are some brief guest introductions and a reminder that there are longer bios on the website. Joining us by phone, although not very far away, Kim Flowers is the Senior Outreach Social Worker at Elder Services of the Merrimack Valley. That's a federally funded area agency on aging in northeastern Massachusetts. She's the primary developer of something called Making Life Care Choices, a program designed to educate and activate elders to develop their end-of-life care plans. So welcome to you, Kim. Glad you're with us. Thank you. Terrific. Okay, we've also got two others on, well, actually three others on the phone, so we're going to head west first. Jean Abbott is Professor Emerita in Emergency Medicine and Attending Physician at University of Colorado Hospital. Dr. Abbott lectures locally and nationally on end-of-life and palliative care issues, also on decision-making and clinical ethics in the hospital setting. Welcome, Jean. Good afternoon to you all. Okay, fabulous. <laughs> Heading south a little now, or way south, Diana Sylvie currently serves as Program Director for the Winter Park Health Foundation. Diana is responsible for identifying the best practices on behalf of one of the Foundation's three focus areas, older adults. Welcome, Diana. Thanks for having me. All right. And last but not least, we've got Kate DeBartolo. She's based in Washington, D.C., working with IHI as the National Field Manager. She designs and executes national field operations for IHI's hospital-based work and also for the Conversation Project. Thanks, Kate. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. All right. So Kate gets our first question. Um, Kate, you're going to briefly remind us about the Conversation Project and Conversation Ready, so we all get pretty much on the same page. But once you do that, I'd love for you to explain how this work has managed in no short order to migrate out to organizations of all sorts and across whole communities. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks, Madge. So this is Kate, and I'm really excited to speak with you about this work today. As many of you know, the Conversation Project is an initiative that was started in 2012 by the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ellen Goodman. And at its core, it's a public engagement campaign to ensure that each person's wishes for end-of-life care are both expressed and respected. So the campaign has its roots in the growing understanding that far too many people are dying in ways they would not choose and that too many of our loved ones, very often their caregivers, are left feeling guilty and uncertain about whether they made the right health care decisions. So the Conversation Project team has specifically been focused on this express side of work for about the last two years, working with many other thought leaders and partners to help raise the profile of the problem and also to create tools and resources for individuals interested in having the conversation. We have a conversation starter kit for talking to loved ones or your doctors, and I see that that link's already going around in the chat. I highly recommend you take a peek at them online. We've got tools for parents to talk to their critically ill children, many translations into additional languages, a YouTube channel, great videos, and platform for folks to share their stories online. So with all this work to change the cultural norm from not having these conversations to having them, there was a natural progression and need to work with healthcare providers and organizations so they're ready to respect those wishes, whatever they may be. So that's how IHI's Conversation Ready work got underway. For the last two years, we've been working with pioneer organizations invested in improving their systems to be able to receive, record, and respect these wishes. You can see some of the details up here on a slide. And we've learned a lot about how to engage staff and local communities. And this, along with the public engagement efforts of the Conversation Project, led to another evolution of working with community partners. 
So to get to Madge's question, there's no way that our small team could spread this work to every individual in the country, and we also wouldn't be as effective as local leaders who understand the context and cultural norms that might help it spread faster. So now we're working with dozens of organizations around the country who want to help bring the conversation project to their region. We've been working with many different types of community groups, senior services, healthcare providers, employers, faith-based organizations, local foundations, and student groups on university campuses, really too many to list here. But we say we're trying to reach people where they work, live, pray, and gather. And these groups host community workshops and trainings, speaker series, movie screenings, dinner conversations, and many other types of events. So I now host monthly calls for those who are doing community work to get together regularly and learn from one another. Anyone on the call today is invited to join us if you'd like. We also do quarterly training calls for those interested in speaking publicly and presenting about the conversation project. So we'll set you up with standard slides, facilitation suggestions, and I posted the details about our next calls and the slides. And again, you can reach out to us for further details. The great thing about our sharing calls is that some teams have been working on this for years and others are just getting started. And I'm really looking forward to today's call to hear some of the examples of work in the field and hope it will give our listeners an idea of how they could get involved in their communities. With that, I'll turn it back to you, Madge, if you have other questions. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Kate. I also um, want to remind people that if you are joining us by phone only and not, are not looking at this uh, online environment, don't forget you can email info at IHI.org and you can get all the slides that we're referring to. And if you have any uh, questions that uh, you don't text to uh, John Gothier here directly, you can also get some help from info at IHI.org during the program. So thanks, Kate. I want to, John, go back to this uh, little framing slide here. I want to also just acknowledge, and if you can kind of hang in there with us, we've got a lot of amazing synergistic efforts going on here, and conversation ready in a community um, sometimes does encompass working with healthcare organizations, which has been the focus of a collaborative uh, that just started to wrap up in October. There will be a seminar in April, but these principles, engage, steward, respect, exemplify, and connect are the work of uh, Kelly McCutcheon-Adams and the team um, that she's been working with there. And so we do have a wealth of resources, and I think if you make the rounds of looking at all these different efforts, you're going to see how they all really do connect. Two of our teams today on our call have been were part of and have been part of that collaborative. So, Gene Abbott, I'm going to turn to you next um, from everything I am learning, and I hope this doesn't sound too corny. Boulder has been bold with this issue. All right. How many people have said that to you? Probably a ton. Okay. But Boulder well, has... <laughs> Boulder is an interesting community, and uh, yep. they're sort of, they love to be cutting edge. Um, my background is in the hospital, and actually in the teaching hospital, University of Colorado Medical School, um, and I've, I've lived in Boulder for 35 years, and and uh, got together with some of my friends um, to get Alan Goodman to come and talk to us in May of 2013. Um, my passion about this comes from ethics consults in the hospital and from my work in emergency medicine, which is my specialty. Um, and just seeing that there are a lot of people for un- who are unprepared for the fact that they actually are going to die and that there are oftentimes choices to be made at that time. And families who are suffering because they don't know what the 
choices are. So I was extremely attracted to this upstream effort, um, and so were some of my colleagues. We um, decided to focus on all of Boulder County. We have three or four towns in the county. We did not want to align with a hospital or a hospice because we didn't want this to be sort of a competitive thing. Um, and so we did this as a grassroots ref, uh, effort for those of us who are attempting to retire or at least trying to slow down and wanted to do something passionate with our time. Um, so uh, we this is the timeline on your uh, screen right now of what we have done since May of 2013 when Ellen visited us. We started to talk to various people in the community, some hospitals, some hospices, some groups, um, and we launched a website in January of 2014. Um, we had a big um, set of tables at all the hospitals and some of the information places um, in uh, at National Healthcare Decisions Day last year, um, and got invited to some of the public lecture series that occur around town. We've been to symposia, we've been to book clubs, we've been um, to a lot of faith groups for adult ed and sharing. Um, so we've been to a whole lot of venues, and on the right side of the timeline is just the accumulation of the number of presentations we've done, and we've hit. 2,200 people that we've presented the materials to through the end of 2014. Just briefly, a few of the things that we learned in this. There are some challenges um, that we have discovered, which were very interesting. Um, you do need some money. We do this as a volunteer kind of thing, but a starter kit costs about a buck to uh, duplicate, and we love to hand out not just one, but something for your spouse when people uh, come to a presentation. Um, we have uh, some administrative and website support, and actually the website itself is probably one of the most important things that we did and provides a lot of resources, um, and I can tell you about that later. It does require volunteers with time and sustained interest, and um, we had some of our original wonderful um, group decide, you know what, we can't commit to this, so we're down to sort of a core of two of us who are pretty passionate about this. There is a little bit of competition in Boulder County among some of the for-profit um, hospices, and there's been a little bit of jockeying uh, because of that. We've trained coaches, and we've trained speakers, and so this is a ripple effect kind of uh, uh, initiative for us, um, but we haven't yet gotten good, made use, good use of our coaches and figured out how to um, get them connected with individuals. And as is true for the conversation project in general, outcomes measures are really difficult when you are uh, presenting and then encouraging people to go out, go forth and present more yourself, and there's sort of a ripple effect, but then knowing how many people exactly have been touched is hard to measure. Um, and um, the conversation ready part of this is something that we're um, we've identified as a major problem, um, but we are um, just now trying to mobilize the hospitals to get into some kind of electronic and commitment-based um, idea of how to receive the wishes of, of our uh, of our citizens. Um, what else? Lessons learned, I guess. Do I have a couple more minutes? Yeah, go go for it. Uh huh. 
Okay. All right. What lessons learned? We have done a ton of presentations, Connie and I, and we have fun with a couple of things that we've learned. Number one, uh, actually, it's listed as number two, is that it's really helpful to have two speakers or facilitators when you present, just so the people have to turn their head, and so it invites conversation instead of one lecturer. We have stopped using. We made slides. We uh, sometimes use videos, but we. Um, don't use slides in our talks except the very formal um, ones that we do to big um, audiences. It's much more fun to ask questions that trigger off conversations and stories from the people who participate with us, and that's so much more meaningful. Um, so we don't lecture. We encourage the conversation, and I like to use the word playing with the starter kit. Um, I think people need to go home and dabble in it. What we do is look at a couple of pages so that that they can get the idea with the starter kit. We sort of ask, what do you think is most important to you? That first fill in the blank in the starter kit. And then we play with one of the Likert scales so that they can understand the Likert scale, that five is not better than one, and that there are people who differ widely in terms of how they come down on some of the cool um, spectrum thoughts um, in the starter kit. Um, we did have the gift of having the Community Foundation in Boulder County become our fiscal umbrella. Um, and so uh, people can donate to uh, them with a line that says the Conversation Project, and we have not had to set up our own tax-exempt organization. Our website has been one of the things we're proudest of. It's um, the Conversation Project in Boulder org and um, we put resources on it we link to articles um, that have been in the news and uh, we have videos and all sorts of teaching materials there so that's about um, it's the two topics that have uh, migrated to the top for everybody tend to be how do I break the ice with my family um, and then how do I talk to my um, my healthcare provider and so we try to focus on that we try to steer my very left-brained Boulder County compatriots away from the written directives that was a sink that we learned early on <laughs> was people wanted to talk about which written directives they had and we said whoa, whoa this is upstream before you can do those Here's let's play with how, what your values and wishes are. That's why I like the program. All right. Well, thank you. All right. I think you can all agree with me that Boulder is bold and has been at this. And <laughs> I think we can all learn from a lot of what you're doing. So thank you very much, Jean. As we go along, uh, we've done uh, obviously the conversation project, or maybe not obviously to everyone, but the conversation project has been around for a few years now. Huge number of resources on their website. Uh, if you need a little more clarification on what's in, all in the, the starter kid, feel free to ask those questions uh, during the chat, uh, and we do invite you to go ahead and click on some of the links so you can see how that starter kit is a, is such a user-friendly step-by-step uh, -step guide. Really, uh, people thought a lot based on the experiences everyone was having about how do you do what Jean was just talking about, break the ice, and have some of these conversations. All right, thanks, Jean. Um, now we're going to turn to Kim. So your uh, 
the senior outreach social worker at an elder services agency in Massachusetts. And if anyone on the panel perhaps is well situated to be talking with older residents in the community about end-of-life care issues, I assume it would be you. Uh, and this issue may have uh, been coming before you daily. Uh, on the other hand, it's never that simple. So tell us uh, what's been going on uh, at Elder Services and uh, kind of key components of the work. And thanks again for joining. Hi. Um, you guys can hear me okay? We sure can. Okay, great. Um yeah, at Elder Services of the Merrimack Valley, we see about 5,000 consumers in the course of a month through all of our programs. And what we had um, originally set out to do was to develop a program to bring it to um, to bring the conversation project to like the larger community. Um, we're going to have like big group meetings, and also we have developed a six-session program called Making Life Care Choices that we do with small groups of people. Um, but as part of the conversation ready and Elder Services, we were, um, I think, the only community agency, non-healthcare-based, to be part of this cohort with uh, the conversation ready project. Um, one of the things that we actually figured out really early on was we couldn't really educate our consumers because we didn't have any, our, our case managers and nurses did not have hands-on experience with really understanding what was involved for themselves because, as you can probably understand, this isn't necessarily just a, a documentation exercise. This is an emotional exercise for a lot of people. So understanding when you ask one of your your consumers or clients, you know, um, have you thought about your your life care choices? That's a big question. So what we did was actually we took a step back and decided we had to put our whole staff, and we have almost 300 people here. We had to put them through that to really literally walk the walk we were asking our consumers to go through. So we prepared and um, we followed through with a full staff education. We did a pilot and then we educated the rest of the staff to do their own conversation project um, documents. And then we went to the five wishes documents after that. So not everybody filled out the five wishes, but everyone at least was able to think through their conversation project document. So. From there, we are now, we've implemented in the agency, um, because, well, let me take another step back, is back really in 2002, the CDC started to recognize that not having advanced directives or understanding what you wanted for end-of-life care was a public health problem, and it's one of their priorities is not only to, to have people have directives, but also to bring it back down to a different community level, take it out of the, the responsibility of the healthcare community completely and really make some people, you know, bring it down to those people that have conversations with older adults and, you know, community members all the time. So that's what we're trying to do here at Elder Services. So we've built it into um, the, the home care visit process, asking people, have you thought about what kind of care you want as things go forward for you. Um, so it's, you know, we, we start with the conversation project uh, documents, the conversation, um, you know, 
Do you want to know a little bit or do you want to know everything? Do you want to be involved or do you want someone else involved to kind of start them to thinking and also to build a more holistic picture for the case managers who are working with these people usually for years um, to really understand who they are. So once we implemented that, what ended up happening is that as our case managers were out talking to clients about this, we are finding that there are pe- people want to talk about this. People want to talk about situations they've experienced in the hospitals or in their doctor's offices that they didn't like or wasn't the, the part of their value system. You know, they're, asked, they're telling me, I need this, and I'm trying to tell them, no, this is what I feel like I want to do, and people weren't listening. Um, so we have a referral process, and which is what the case managers are now doing. So if they, a lot of consumers, you can just talk to them. They have family members. They want to hear this. They want the documents, but they go through it with their family members. For those who need someone else to talk about it with first, we have a referral process where those cases get referred to me. I go out and talk to people about what they want. And one of the um, the slides that you saw, there was one of the stories. Um, a woman who had been through the healthcare system multiple times was never felt she was never listened to when she was in the hospital, and that as a result, she did not trust that they were going to do what she wanted when it came to someone having to make decisions about her. So she didn't want her doctor making decisions. She wants her family to do it. So we talked about how to talk to your doctor about that, especially some people are dealing with doctors that they don't know. If they're going into the hospital and they're meeting up with a hospitalist that they've never met, which is one of the problems, how are they communicating, this is who I am, these are the decisions I've made, this is what my family and I agree on, and how do you talk to your doctor? about those kind of things. So that's what we're building into this process, that we're helping people to not, we're not telling them how to do that, how to do an advanced directive. We're helping them to understand how to talk to their doctor or their families or understand for themselves what it is that they want. So they know why I can, I have a voice and I can make my voice known when I'm back in the healthcare system. So that's what our program is all about here. All right. Thank you very much. And, uh, I want to thank Kim. Um, Kim, there was, uh, there were two other little slides, uh, that you you don't see here, but we can always actually post them. One was a, a nice story or a very moving story about somebody who kind of realized, um, you know, how she could uh, take advantage of some of your counsel to get uh, more control over her life, thinking about the uh, end of life. And I want to thank you also for some of your ideas also about the changes and some things that will be happening going forward. So um, it'll be interesting to come back and talk with all of you and perhaps some others in the not-too-distant future to see what else is going on. All right, Diana, Sylvie, and Winter Park as our fourth and final panelist today. You've got that great advantage of having heard what everyone else has to say. So you could perhaps tell us maybe what's going on in Winter Park with an eye towards what's similar or different from what you've heard. Um, I think your origins are also kind of interesting uh, as a health foundation. So we're glad you're with us today. Thanks a lot, Diana. Thank you. Um, let me start there then, Madge, in terms of just a little bit of information about our organization. Uh, the Winter Park Health Foundation is a private foundation with a 20-year history of serving the Central Florida community. Our grant making is focused in Orange County, Florida, and more specifically, you see here, in the communities of Winter Park, Maitland, and Eatonville. 
As part of our strategic planning process, Foundation Leadership has identified three strategic directions that help guide our work over five-year periods. Um, so through 2016, we have the following marching orders, if you will, to encourage healthy lifestyles, to reduce health disparities, and to improve the system of care. And it's really that last direction that aligns so well with our decision to support end-of-life discussions. And we began this journey last January. Kate and Kelly have been with us every step of the way. God love them. Um, through our close relationship with Winter Park Memorial Hospital, which is part of the Adventist Health System, we did provide funding for them to participate in the Conversation Ready learning community that Kate and Madge both mentioned earlier. Um, I was lucky enough to be on their team. And I learned so much about the complexity of end-of-life discussions and documents or the lack thereof. And so as we continued to meet over those eight months, it became very clear to me that the foundation needed to support a community-based initiative to encourage end-of-life discussions and documentation. There's also the lived reality of our staff that coincides with our support of this issue. We are small, there are 11 of us, and our average age is 54. And I think we have a slide that shows that. Um, several of us already have or are currently dealing with issues relating to the care of our parents or other loved ones. And of the few of us that have yet to be effective, we realize it is likely to happen to them soon. And these lived experiences, quite honestly, some good, some not so good, pointed to a clear need to promote end-of-life planning relative to the care you don't or you do want to receive. So we were able to make a grant to the National Gerontological Nursing Association, who will lead this effort locally through their incredible Orlando-based chapter. Our primary audience is older adults living within our target communities, and ideally we want to reach older adults who are healthy and are proactively thinking about their end-of-life care. That said, we realize that's a pretty tall order, and we will welcome people of all ages and health conditions who choose to participate. We will use the Conversation Project Starter Kit as the first step. Our plan is to have Kate down here next month to train local champions and coaches. And then once they're equipped with the skills they need, um, they will promote and facilitate end-of-life discussions. Um, they'll do this through a public awareness campaign, the use of PSAs, presentations, a website, newsletters, and a number of other um, different channels. The goal is really to encourage families, faith communities, elder care advocates, and others to have the conversation. But our plan is not to stop there. Once people have made their wishes known, we will promote the importance of documenting those wishes using the Five Wishes tool. And we also intend to make people aware of how cell phones can be particularly helpful and their ability to store the document and have it accessible through various apps that are available. Ultimately, the end game is to share the completed document with family, friends, and healthcare providers, as you have heard our other speakers today reference. So we know this is an ambitious undertaking. We will watch it unfold over the next year. We are grateful to be in a position to provide resources because we understand that is an issue. We've heard Jean talk about that today. Um, we're very early in the process. The grant just began last month, and I expect we have a lot to learn. Uh, we are grateful to a committed group of individuals who have stepped forward to help us with this effort in their steering committee role. We had a meeting just this morning. But um, before I wrap up, I just want to share one particular 
um, steering committee member's point of view. He's a man um, who has a unique background, as you will soon hear. Um, and in reacting to the low number of people in the U.S. that have expressed their end-of-life wishes, he said this, Having been through both seminary and law school, I see these statistics from an additional point of view. He said, in law school, I was trained to draft end-of-life planning documents, including living wills and health care advance directives, but not how to have a conversation with the client about what they really want. In seminary, I was trained to comfort families during the sudden decline in the health of a loved one, but not how to encourage them to discuss it in advance of a decline so they know that decisions the patient might have wanted to be made. I have seminary training in bereavement care and pastoral care in times of crisis, but like most seminary grads, was never taught about having the conversation that would make those crisis situations more manageable. That's what this project's all about, getting people in all walks of life to have these discussions with their family members, clients, and parishioners, and encouraging them to discuss these issues with their loved ones before it is too late. And we are thrilled to be a part. All right, Diana, thank you so much. Uh, very um, moving um, comments, uh, th- that last one, and really appreciated all that information. We're going to turn in just a minute uh, to chat. I think what I'd like to do, though, is just ask Kate DeBartolo very, very quickly, uh, since she's got the perch of uh, the conversation project and conversation ready um, there, it's sort of the big picture there, and uh, maybe even just, Kate, a very quick comment about the fact that there is uh, a whole faith-based um, a kind of effort uh, underway in, in, as part of all of this work. Absolutely. Thanks, Madge. We have been um, working with a woman who is helping us with a lot of our faith-based efforts. She's trained both as a former minister with her own congregation as well as as a nurse and has done a lot of hospice work. And it's helping different groups around the country who are interested in this, but especially we're working with the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, um, which is a group of all different types of congregations and community leaders who are figuring out ways to spread this with their um with their kind of houses of worship and creating a grounding of this in their pastoral care. So we hope to have a conversation Sabbath this November where all of the different groups in Boston are going to be sharing this with their um, parishes. And we'll have a lot of these tools and resources up on our website. Right now, we're in the process of building a community resource center on our site. So a lot of these different community organizing suggestions, materials and tools, how to host events, how to measure your work or involve media. So we've got a lot of that coming coming soon. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Kate. All right, John, um, remind everybody, I know folks are already busy on the chat. Thank you for your comments and thoughts already, but made just a quick reminder about how to make sure everyone knows how to participate. Quick reminder in the send to box at the bottom, make sure that you're addressed to all participants. That way everyone on the WebEx can see your questions and comments. That's right. And do use chat, not Q&A, although I think we may be disabled that at some point. Do not use Q&A. <laughs> it's just there to confuse you. So use chat. All right. Well, um, thank you for some of your early questions. I think I'm going to, uh, and, and thoughts already, and some of the networking. That's what we love to see on the chat. Um, I think I'm going to go for um, one early question that came in about uh, measurement and outcomes, since we're in the improvement space here, and what people are tracking uh, now and 
maybe what they have, excuse me, what they may plan to track going forward. And Jean, maybe I'll start with you out in Boulder. You certainly were tracking um, the uh, numbers of presentations that were being given in the community. So uh, speak to that issue about what kinds of things you're measuring or uh, keeping track of. I would love some suggestions as to how to actually do this, because we know that we live in an era where you have to justify your existence by showing your <laughs> outcomes, and um, and this is a grassroots thing. Um, ultimately, the number that can... Uh, I have some thoughts about it, because we've been agonizing over this for 16 months, um, some thoughts that eventually the number that are uploaded into a hospital system um, and that kind of database would be useful or given to people's primary docs, and we're actually working with physicians in the community to try to establish that link, but it's very tricky. Um, the other modality that the Life Quality Institute has helped us, we had a small grant from them, um, do is to do a postcard um, that you send out four weeks later, which um, asks, um, were you able to have the conversation, um, just a few basic questions that would indicate whether people have moved on from the presentation or not. The other measurement is the number of people who come back to a second presentation, and one of the most rewarding things that we have done is to follow Ellen's recommendation to... Um, bring people back at, at six to seven weeks and ask what their experience is. It, it, uh, there's some poignant stories, and it really energizes the people who haven't been able to and helps the group brainstorm on ways to broach the subject, break the ice, um, share things. Okay, thanks, Jean. Well, listen, Jean has asked for ideas uh, and maybe some of the things that some of you who've joined us today are doing uh, as a way to uh, kind of look at what impact uh, you may be having. So feel free to share those things um, w- during this conversation right now. Kim, I thought I might ask you as well about that in terms of being uh, an elder services agency and maybe there, you know, since there may well already be built into the uh, infrastructure or the system uh, lots of things that you're tracking. Does this fit into things that you're being asked to uh, evaluate in a routine way or measure in any way? Yeah, well, we actually did measure even the training that we did here with our staff before we started out. We did um, a pre-survey and a post-survey just to find out not only whether or not they had um, uh, at least health care proxies, advanced directives, but also did they know what it was and did they know what a DNR um, or a MOLST, you know, medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, did they know what that was because we really, I guess we kind of assumed that our staff knew some of this stuff, and it turned out that um, there was a lot they didn't know. So the pre- and post-surveys that we did before that actually helped us to track how effective the training was, which I think is important because I do think that you need to know what you need to train the people on that you're asking to go out and ask those questions of. In terms of now, once they have that, what we're tracking now is how many healthcare proxies are actually ending up documented in our electronic client system because actually one of the reasons that this even started, one of the motivators for us is that it's very difficult for us to get, um, well, not for 
when our, our when our consumers end up in the hospital, a lot of the um, the rehabs won't accept them without a healthcare proxy in place. That was becoming a very big issue for us here in the Merrimack Valley, and we realized that we we hadn't educated our consumers on why it's important to have one. So now, not only are we asking them, but we're keeping the information about who their proxy is in our electronic system, and now the case managers know. So if their client's in the hospital, and the hospital says, do you know who we could contact for this, we at least have a name. That Those are the metrics we're keeping just in terms of, are we starting to have this conversation? conversation with people. We're not actually keeping their advanced directives because, you know, that would be unwieldy for one thing, but also we just want to recognize their privacy. But it is documented for us if our case manager has the conversation with them or, and I also have all the five wishes documents and the conversation project documents, so I'm tracking how many of the um, the case managers are coming and where those are going when they, when they bring them out to the field. Thanks a lot, Kim. Uh, I really appreciate Appreciate knowing that. Um, lots of really interesting questions. We have to multitask during this program, and I'm looking at all your really wonderful thoughts. Um, here is an issue that uh, has comes up uh, in an ongoing way, as it should. And I really want to acknowledge Honoring Choices Minnesota for talking a little bit about uh, some of the multicultural uh, framing that they're doing with their work. Um, would any of you like to speak to your efforts in light of uh, people from minority communities, uh, diverse uh, racial or ethnic backgrounds, and what you're learning uh, as part of that. Um, And uh, maybe Kate might have some thoughts about that, given the large range of communities you're working with. Um, uh, Jean, is that something that has come up at all in Boulder? It has come up, and we are looking for partners in the uh, Latino community um, to help us. You can't transliterate this. The narratives are different. The cultural approaches, as one of your commentators said um, in the uh, streaming chat here, um, and as as two postmenopausal white women uh, <laughs> running this effort here, um, we feel that we're not adequate to doing that. But there are some community health clinics that are trying to figure out focus groups um, of Latina patients of theirs who can learn a format that would be acceptable and um, and received well in that community. Okay, thank you very, very much. Go ahead. And I would say that there are some great resources that we've seen from different communities. I'd highly recommend people look at the work out of Stanford University and what they have on ethnogeriatrics around end-of-life um, wishes or cultural associations um, with many different groups around the country. We've also been sure that the translations that we have on our website were not just word-for-word translations, but really take into consideration a lot of the cultural changes. We've got feedback you know, from a group in Cincinnati who wanted to work with patients who speak Russian, that this should really go through the Jewish Community Health Center and not from the doctors because that's how it will be received best. And this kind of gets to why it's so important for us to work in communities so that we know the best way to approach this. Right. In Providence, Rhode Island, some medical students were doing health screenings at the Chinese Christian Church and found that they wanted to translate it into Mandarin and the ways that they could go about having the conversation that were culturally appropriate. So it's really interesting to see what kind of 
allies and advocates within the group can help you reach out to different populations. Okay. Very cool, Kate. Th- thanks a lot. Uh, very, very interesting. Diana, um, I don't want to necessarily put you on the spot specifically on the pediatric issue, but you did talk about working with, I think, you, uh, Winter Park Memorial Hospital, and uh, maybe that can be our segue to talking specifically about end-of-life um, conversations with relationship to pediatrics and the clinicians who are involved there. But describe a little bit about what, I know you're, you're at an early stage, but at least what the hopes are with, with the hospital. Well, you know, they, this, as I mentioned, this Conversation Ready has really been an eye-opening experience for them and for all of us, quite frankly. Um, you know, the whole idea is, as Kate mentioned, to be ready to accept this activated public. And so we have a very um, diverse representation of hospital staff around the table. And even though the learning collaborative has ended, they continue to work, and I continue to meet with them regularly um, just to advance this work within their their healthcare setting. So um, the hope is that many of those nurses, uh, social workers, case managers, etc., will participate in our training that's coming up in about six weeks and will be trained to understand how better to be comfortable with having the conversation with their patients. Um, obviously, you know, it's, it's really our upstream goal to have those conversations before people present at their facility, but um, I think the two, the two work hand in hand in the sense of, you know, we do what we can in the community setting, they do what they can in the hospital setting, and, you know, eventually we hope to reach um, about 1,800 people through our efforts here. So you're right, very early, and um, we're dealing with many of the issues that I've heard the other speakers talk about today, um, but are very hopeful that, um, you know, by equipping people with the kind of skills they need to begin to feel more comfortable about having these conversations that will at least begin to advance um, the, the conversation somewhat here locally. Thank you. Kate, why don't you talk just briefly about the pediatric starter kit and um, there may be even some additional resources that we might be able to share um, if, if not right now on our resource document that we post tomorrow uh, about end of life and in the pediatric setting. Sure. So this is a kit that recently came out based on feedback we received from members of the community, from different parents, from providers, saying that this was something that was missing right now in in this world of end-of-life conversations, how parents can talk to their children who are critically ill at various ages, but you know, definitely under 18, and how do you talk to minors about this? So we worked with different experts on it. It is not meant to be a script for anybody. It's really kind of a guide for parents. Some of it's for their own thinking about, you know, can I even go there with my kid? Is this going to be more upsetting for them or not? And ways of posing questions to them to start to get to what it is that matters most to um, to their child. So that, that tool is up and available on our website. And one of the other ones that I just posted in the chat, but I wanted to be sure to let people know about, is a free IHI open school course that we have that's meant for um, current clinicians. So there's free CEUs associated with it about how to start having this conversation with 
patients. And so we've, we've included the link there for that as well. All right. Thank you very much. I want to acknowledge again uh, that you know, many of you are sharing a number of links and resources. That's one of the beauties of the chat, and we appreciate that. And we'll also scour this uh, when we're done with the program and see if there's a few more things that we can uh, throw up in the resource document. Um, let me ask a little bit about um, kind of relating. Gene uh, Abbott referred a little bit to sort of competition. Hate to even think about the fact that around something so intense as end of life that people might be, you know, squabbling over, you know, whose territory it is. But we all know these things happen. And uh, there are very active efforts, multiple efforts, um, at least um, even if we've got a lot of work to do to fill the gap in the needs, but people have been trying for years with different kinds of tools. Gene uh, made a comment, and this is not a judgment that maybe Five Wishes hasn't been, she wouldn't didn't find as effective. Um, I'm curious, uh, Kate, if uh, that's something that the Conversation Project sort of does some sorting sometimes about um, a lot of the different efforts that are out there, and uh, uh, do you have a kind of an agnostic view and, and just hope people take advantage of, of whatever works for them? Yeah, you know, we've seen in the chat all of the different tools or resources groups are using, and I think that we think all of them are extremely valuable. We see the Conversation Project in particular as very upstream. This is about how you even start having the conversation so that people are having it around the kitchen table and not in the ICU and that you're not trying to learn these answers in a crisis moment. But that it's then very important after you've started to have the conversation, how do you get it documented, how do you get it as part of the medical record. So there are a lot of great tools and Five Wishes is one of them that are important kind of along the continuum. Um, and we would just say that it's important for folks to not just fill out a form but be sure that they're talking about it with their loved ones as well. But, again, that's what's great about working with all the different communities that know which tools are helpful for their constituents. Okay, great. John, why don't we just make a mention, because uh, before you know it, we're going to be at the top of the hour. So I, I want to acknowledge that there is a uh, seminar coming up in April uh, related to Conversation Ready. And uh, John uh, has some information. You might be interested in attending IHI's summit uh, where some of these conversations are going to continue. Um, so um, more things uh, beyond uh, WHI. John? Yeah, if you uh, feel like, um, if, and if you're the kind of person who enjoy enjoy great conferences, you might want to check out the IHI Office Practice Summit, which is being held uh, this year, March 15th to 17th in Dallas, Texas. Um, and specifically, we're featuring a special interest breakfast on the Conversation Project, which is an informal meeting to hear from members of the team and ask questions if you might have them after today. And we'll We'll also have a, uh, a session, Public Engagement Conversation Project Case Studies, where we'll be exploring case studies um, around uh, helping communities become conversation ready. All right. Thanks very, very much. Appreciate that. And if people have other events they want to share as well. Jean Abbott, I'd like to go back to something that was on one of your uh, lists or slides um, where you spoke of some pilots uh, that you're trying to get off the ground. And I um, wonder if you might sort of help us kind of even as a way of even looking ahead. What kinds of pilots are you talking about? 
Um, hmm, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what you were talking about. We have a couple of initiatives that we're um, thinking of. Okay. We are working on our Alzheimer's community. We are working with the Latina community. Um, and then we're doing a pilot with physicians where um, nurses in the offices are trained to have focus groups and they're, um, and they're getting referrals from physicians. This is actually something started by a colleague of mine at the University of Colorado, Hillary Lum, where uh, people are being referred from geriatrics clinics to focus groups and then with a follow-up in five or six weeks using the starter kit. Okay. All right. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I don't know. I hope I didn't dream that idea of... Uh, no, no. I think you're right. I used the P word. That's, yeah. quite, that's, that's quite all right. We have a question, uh, and I think it's that somebody is asking, Cynthia, does anyone have any good ideas about getting physicians to get involved in the conversation with patients and families? Well, the good news is physicians are. I think it's still a little bit under the radar screen and is not necessarily the norm or part of everyday experience, um, we've done some WIHIs about conversation ready in the healthcare sitting, excuse me, setting, which is of course quite related to in the community. Um, so I think uh, hopefully we can refer you to some of those resources as well. Um, but I guess, uh, I don't know whether that's Jean, Kim, or Diana, each one of you, why don't I start with uh, Diana, any thoughts at all about um, concerns that somehow physicians really hang back or having uh, have a hard time with this? Well, I think, you know, we, we are fortunate with the Conversation Ready team to have a palliative care physician, and he has been really incredible in opening our eyes as to some of the physician's point of view in all of this, and it, it really has um, helped to understand a little bit from where they're coming from in their, in their role to really cure as opposed to heal. And um, I think it's, you know, my personal opinion is it's going to probably take some reimbursement incentive to get this done. But even at the point where that kicks in, and I hope that's not too far off, um, you know, they're still going to need to have a comfort level with this. So, um, you know, these, these resources in terms of training is going to be um, essential in helping them to feel like they can do this work well. Okay, thank you. Um, any other thoughts? Uh, Jean yeah. or Kim, go ahead. Uh huh. Well, speaking as a doc, um, unfortunately, oh, right. That's right. I, You're I, on the spot. <laughs> I don't. I don't see my colleagues as doing this. It's time consuming. I think our best method is going to be to be paying a facilitator nursing. You're, I think you're absolutely right that it's going to take funding. But I think um, group um, work is really helpful because people learn from each other, small groups, and a nurse facilitator. I think that uh, Wisconsin has taught us this, that um, nurse navigators, facilitators are very useful because docs just don't have the time to sit back and kick back and say, so tell me what matters to you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're not going to take that lying down, Jean, though. We're all working very hard. <laughs> you go. Anything you can do to light a fire is fine with me. <laughs> all right. Okay. Kim, any thoughts about uh, your in, in, uh, from Elder Services perspective about engaging with uh, the provider community? Um, I've had better luck working with them around those clients that we get that are referred from the Medicare 3026 program, which is the community um, care transitions. So people that are like 
chronically showing up to the emergency room because their symptoms aren't being managed as well as they'd like them to be, who don't really know much about palliative care and haven't thought about it yet, those are the referrals that we're getting from um, the medical community saying, can you talk to these folks about what they do want and can we get them in palliative? So I think that's the direction that's been the most effective for us. All right. Very, very good. All right. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, no. Go right ahead, Kate. Go ahead. I was just going to share one other example that we've heard from some folks at Care New England in Rhode Island where they found that among their palliative care team, they ended up designating a nurse to be the conversation nurse. That was her entire job was to be the one who goes and has all of the conversations, which freed up the physician's time for more of things that required, you know, an MD and a lot of the pain management, things like that. And it was so successful in terms of using everybody's efforts kind of at the highest level. I think they've gotten another conversation nurse, and they're going to start doing that going out to the community. So it's interesting to kind of think through how to reconfigure already existing teams um, for some to focus on conversations and others to focus on other parts of the care. All right. Thank you very much. All right. I want to give a big shout-out and thanks to our audience today, to Kate DeBartolo, Diana Sylvie, Jean Abbott, Kim Flowers, everyone who helped me with this program. I hope you notice that on each of their bio slides, there is an email address if you want to follow up with any of these individuals directly. Uh, as you can hear from each of them, they're more than willing to offer anything that they know and ideas and resources, and there's a whole building apparatus going on here as evidenced in the chat. I mean, this is a rich document as well. A reminder then that you can download these slides when you get off the program today, all the resources, including the chat, and I encourage you to do so and take advantage of some of the information. All of this and more, including the audio, will be on IHI.org tomorrow. Next up on WIHI, that's on January 29th, When Everyone Knows Your Name, Identifying Patients with Complex Needs. And I've got a great panel that, too, is sort of coming out of some collaborative work that's been going on at IHI. And we're going to really look hard at this issue of better and more precise ways to really be teeing up services to the population that will most benefit from them. So I hope you'll join us for that. And then we've got another show coming up, as you see, in um, February. We're pretty much here with you every other week. Uh, So uh, thanks for your participation today. We always welcome uh, how to make the show better. You can email info at IHI.org. We invite you also to fill out the survey when you get off the show today. If you feel like posting something on the Facebook page, please do. Don't forget at the IHI in your tweets, any questions whatsoever, info at IHI.org. The people who help make WYHI possible, and there are many of them, John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, also some help from Ruth today. And it's my privilege, as it always is, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks everyone for being such a great panel and audience. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.